Well, when you build a house, probably have a couple of you out there that have done that. I have not built a house. But when you build a house, you start with a design. But also, most houses have some kind of foundation. And well-built houses are constructed from solid materials that are able to withstand the elements. And though houses come in various styles, various shapes, each house has a purpose. Perhaps that purpose is to house one, maybe two individuals. Perhaps the house is large enough for an entire family. But you know, in many ways, there are similarities between a house and a church. And I'm not talking about the church building. There are similarities between how a house is built and how the church is to be established. We begin a new series this morning, a mini-series that's on the church. It's called Church Basics. And what I hope to accomplish with this series is to revisit what the church is. What is its purpose? Who are its leaders? How does the church make disciples? Those kinds of questions are the questions that I want to attack for the next four weeks. Now, as Britt was reading the scripture, you might have been thinking to yourself, we just did this. Because last week, you may remember, we met this very same story from the book of Mark. I preached that last week, but let me assure you of something. This is a very different sermon. It just so happens that the same passage from the book of Matthew introduces our new topic this morning. In Matthew 16, this is the first time the word church is used in the New Testament. The Greek word is ekklesia. And the question that I want to deal with today is this. What is the church? What is the church? What are we doing If you stop and think about it, what is this seemingly crazy thing that we do every single week? We gather together as a group of people, and we sing songs together. That's weird. I bet none of you actually do that in your place of work with your coworkers. And then we listen to some guy rattle on from an old book. Why do we do this? What is this all about? That's the question I want to answer, and I want to answer it from Matthew 16, but I'm going to be using other scriptures as well. In Matthew 16, the verses that we just read, I'm going to zero in on verses 18 and 19, and I want to deal with four aspects to the church. But before I do that, let's do some defining. Let's do some defining. What is the church? I just told you the Greek word is ekklesia. It's a combination of two Greek words, ek which means out of, and kaleo, which means to call. So the literal meaning is the called out. Now, you might be tempted to think, ooh, that sounds good. We are the called out ones. We are the ones called out from the world. We're the church. And it would be very tempting to think that way. And let's be honest, that'll preach. But I have to be honest with you, that word ecclesia is not unique to the idea of the church. Jesus didn't invent it in Matthew 16. It had been used long before that. Ecclesia is a general word for assembly or gathering. In fact, it's used in Acts chapter 19 
when a riot broke out in Ephesus, the crowd was going crazy. And verse 32 of Acts 19 says, Now some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. You see, that word assembly there is the word ecclesia. But that assembly in Ephesus was the furthest thing from a church. It was a crowd that had gone crazy. So the reason I bring this up is because that word ecclesia, as much as, as tempted as we are to think that was originally created as a word for the church, it actually wasn't. It was used to denote a general assembly. However, that same word throughout most of the book of Acts and throughout the epistles and then throughout church history became a word that was used more and more and more with reference to the church. Now, many of you love entomology. That was meant to be a joke. Many of you love entomology. Actually, probably you don't. You may have wanted to forget the entomology that you studied in high school. But you might be wondering, where do we get this English word for the church? Where do we get that English word? Well, I'm going to like push through a lot of entomological study there and get right to the basic. Through the years, you guys know how language changes from years to years to years. Church came from other languages going all the way back to a Greek word, and the Greek word was kuriakos, and that word means belonging to the Lord. Another meaning is the Lord's house. And over time and through different languages, that word came to our English word as church. You're like, okay, Ryan, you've gone through a lot of the history of the word on church, but you still haven't given us a definition of what is a church. What's a definition? Here's your definition. And this comes from Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology. The church is a community of all true believers for all time. I love simple definitions. I love it. The church is a community of all true believers for all time time. Similarly, Mark Dever, who's the senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., says, the church is a people, not a place or a statistic. It's a body united unto him, Jesus, who is the head. It's a family joined together by adoption through Christ. How do you like that? You're all adopted and you didn't even know it. What is the church? It's a community. The church is a community. It's a people. Specifically, it's a people who are followers of Jesus Christ. The church is a community of believers in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we get that definition? Did Wayne Grudem or Mark Dever just kind of sit around one day and think up something clever? Not at all. They got their definition from Scripture. Now, there's not a chapter and verse in the Bible that says, here's what the church is. We don't have that in the Bible. What we do have is how the New Testament used that word ecclesia. And as you go through the book of Acts and the epistles, we see how that word is used, and that's how we get to our definition of the church. So how does the Bible use that word ecclesia? Well, even though the word ecclesia was used to denote a general assembly of people, most of the time, like I said, throughout Acts and the epistles, it's used to speak of the church. Let me give you a few examples. Romans 16.5, Paul writes... Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church in their house. He was using that word church to refer to their house church. 
a group of assembly of believers that met in their home. So the word can be used to specify a local body of believers, but it doesn't stop there. The word ecclesia can also be used to refer to the church of a city. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul writes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to the most sanctified in Christ Jesus. Here Paul is referring to the church of the city of Corinth. Harvest Decatur would be a church of the city of Decatur. Furthermore, the word ecclesia can refer to the church in a region. Acts 9.31, Luke writes this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So in this verse, the word church is singular, but you'll notice he uses it in reference to the churches within a region. It refers to them in the singular because though there are many physical churches, there's really one church. And the New Testament shows us that, that there are many churches, but there's one church. Right now, all over the United States, churches are meeting. On the other side of the world, they've already met. They're in the future. But all these churches if they are true to the message of Jesus Christ, are all one church. They're all one church. Jesus has one bride. And the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ in the Bible. And those are the ways the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament. It doesn't matter if it was referring to a house church, a city church, or many churches within a region. It was always referred to a body of believers. And not only that, the word was also used to refer to the church throughout all time. Ephesians 3.21, we sometimes use this in our benediction at the end of our services, says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I like to say when we do our membership classes that the church is both local and universal. We have local churches that meet in cities and in homes all throughout the world, but there's one church that spans the entire globe and spans all of history. So that word ecclesia was used of the assembly of God's people in both locally and universally throughout all time. That brings us back to our definition. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. Now, what are the different aspects of the church? Where did it come from? How is it supposed to work? What's its purpose? Well, that brings us back to our text today in Matthew chapter 16. So I'm going to read over verses 18 and 19 again. Will you join me? And I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. From that, I want to give you four aspects of the church. Jesus says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Here's your first point. The founder of the church is Jesus Christ. The founder of the church is Jesus Christ. Jesus is our founder, or to use one of Scripture's metaphors, Jesus is the head. 
Jesus is the head of the church. Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You could say it this way. <clears throat> the church is Jesus' brainchild. He, this is his, rather, organization. And it's interesting to note that the church is not strictly a New Testament thing. Now, let me explain that. There's some debate on this, but a close look at the Scripture reveals that the church has always been a part of God's plan. I know we often go back to Acts chapter 2 to talk about the birth of the church, and you're right to say that. You are. But if you consider the purpose of the church, which is to worship God and make disciples, that's been happening since the beginning of time. Man was created to worship God and learn about him and enjoy him. After the fall and after much history, we had the temple, we had the tabernacle, and then in the New Testament, we had synagogues. What were those? Places of assembly. So in that sense, in the sense that we were always meant to gather and worship and learn about the Lord, the church has always been around since the beginning. There are different schools of thought on this. Some see the Old Testament Israel and the church in the New Testament as two separate plans in the mind of God. There is even a term that is used to describe where we are in history. Some say we would be in the, the church age. They would define this as an interruption of God's plan for Israel and a different plan altogether. Now, those who believe this way are my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, but I, I want to submit to you, I, I think differently. I think God has always had one plan, one plan of redemption, and where we are now, what some might call the church age, I see as part of God's greater plan where the Gentiles are coming in and receiving redemption. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you do a close study of Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, what you see is that what was two distinct groups, Jews and Gentiles, are now one man in Christ. There are not two different plans, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. There's one plan. Jesus broke down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles and created one unified group, the church. We are all fellow citizens and members of the household of God. Furthermore, when you get to Revelation, you don't have two groups worshiping God. You don't have Israel and the church worshiping God. You have one group. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. It's a long passage, but I'm going to read it to you. It's on the screen. After this, I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying aloud with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. There's one plan, one group, one church, and the founder is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, defeated sin and death and made salvation possible, fulfilling Old Testament scripture, by the way, 
so that now all who are saved, all who call on his name, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, is a part of his church. Now, what does all that mean for us right now? Well, if Jesus is the head, then everyone, pastor, elder, deacon, congregant, everyone submits to him. We are under his authority. Jesus is the head of the church, not Ryan Jackson, not the elder board. Jesus is the head of the church. We work in submission to him. We have no rights, none of us, we have no right to bring our own agenda into this organization. We are to bow in submission to Jesus Christ and how he desires his church to operate. We're going to get more into what that looks like in the weeks to come, but we submit to the head, Jesus Christ. So point number one, the founder of the church is Jesus Christ. We're looking at four aspects of the church. Here's your second point for the text this morning. The foundation of the church is the apostles. The foundation of the church is the apostles. Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The foundation of the church is the apostles. Now, let me clarify something, because you might be thinking, wait, I thought Jesus was the foundation of the church. Yes, you're right. Jesus is the foundation of the church, but he worked through the apostles to build his church. In fact, Ephesians 2.20 reads this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Christ is the cornerstone, and that idea of cornerstone, by the way, that's the initial stone of a building. That was to set the foundation. The rest of the foundation was built off of that cornerstone. That stone was to set the other stones and make sure they were square. And if you've ever built anything, you know how important it is that your structure is square, that means that it's lined up like it should be. Otherwise, if it's not square, your structure is going to be thrown off and things won't line up the way they should. And you go to put a door on it and the door's not going to close all the way. Why? Because the structure's not square. That's never happened to me. The apostles after Christ are the foundation of the church. That means the church was built on their ministry. And we see that all throughout the book of Acts. The apostles, remember the apostles were those who walked with Jesus, his disciples. We've been reading about those in our study in Mark. They were the ones who were to establish the church. Peter remained in Jerusalem and he built the church there. Paul went everywhere and he either planted or supported churches abroad. 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament are epistles. Many were written by apostles to churches or to pastors giving instructions on how to do this thing we call the church. So if the apostles are the foundation of the church, Christ being the cornerstone, and if they have written instructions on how we are to do this thing, then it is essential that we pattern our church after their teaching and after their model. 
It's essential that we set up our structure, our leadership, and our ministries after their structure, their leadership, and their ministries. And I'll be speaking on those topics in the weeks to come, but just by way of introduction, this is why we have elders. You know that in the church in America, there are different forms of church government, but the reason we here at Harvest have elders is because the first church had elders. It's because the first church set up by the apostles was elder-led. Let me give you a couple verses on that. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Acts 14.23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor. The structure given by the apostles was to establish elders. But here's another thing. The structure by the apostles is also why we here at Harvest do small groups. Because the early church would meet together and then they would break into smaller groups and go to one another's home. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 2. This is why we pattern things the way we do at Harvest. Now, does this mean that we ignore everything in our culture, everything in in the way we grew up, and just pattern all of it after the church in Jerusalem? Is, Is that what this means? Does this mean our worship should look like what it did in Jerusalem? Does this mean our preaching style should look like what it did in Jerusalem? Does this mean our children's ministry should look like what it did in Jerusalem? Well, let me assure you, within the framework that the apostles set up, there's a lot of freedom. We don't limit ourselves to singing the same songs we didn't, they did in Jerusalem. We don't even know what the songs were they sang in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of freedom in the cultural differences and expressions within the church. We here in America, we do worship a certain way. If you were to go to a church in Africa, the worship would be very different. And that's okay. It's not structured in such a way to limit it to one look. It's structured in such a way to allow freedom, but we follow the structure that they set. And we, by the way, as an elder board, we guard that. We look at the different songs. We look at the different sermons. We look at the different things that we do as a church, and we ask the question, are we following the pattern? We model we follow the model set for us by the apostles in the early church. And I, just, I want you to know, I stress this, because I want you to know the reason Harvest does what it does is because the early church did what it did. There is intentionality behind our operations. A number of years ago, before we planted Harvest Decatur, we were looking into planting specifically a Harvest Church. Some of you were there when we were doing that. And we had, at the time, we had an ongoing relationship with an organization called Harvest Bible Fellowship. They planted Harvest Churches. And the reason we were so attracted to that is because their model, behind their model, was churches that were intentional. That word intentional, you may remember, was thrown around a lot. Everything they did was intentionally supported by Scripture. This is why we do things this way. This is why we do that that way, because it's supported by Scripture. There is intentionality behind every operation here at Harvest. You know, the fellowship, the fellowship used to have this saying. They would say, we don't play church. In other words, we're here to do this thing right, and that is according to, to Scripture, we model our church after the foundation. 
after the apostles. So we have the founder of the church, the foundation of the church. Thirdly, we're looking at four aspects of the church. Number three, the might of the church. The might of the church. In other words, the strength of the church, the power of the church. And here it is. It can withstand death. How strong is the church? Strong enough to withstand death. Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a strong statement. That is a strong statement. The might of the church, it can withstand death. That phrase, gates of hell, that was a popular metaphor in the ancient world. It was an expression of death. It was a way of saying death cannot overcome this. What does it mean that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church? It means that the eventual outcome of all mankind has no power over the church. I know it's Father's Day, but let's be real for a minute. Death is our reality. If Christ does not come back beforehand, you and I will face death. It is the enemy of old. God warned Adam in the garden, if you eat, you would die, and he ate. And we have faced death ever since. But my beloved friends, death cannot conquer God's church. Jesus defeated death. And so his church cannot be conquered by that enemy. People die. Businesses fail. Kingdoms fall. Governments dissolve. Schools close. Theaters crumble. Church buildings erode. But the congregation of true believers for all time will remain until Christ comes back to bring his bride home. And nothing, not even death, can stop the church, though many attempts have tried. Nero tried to stop the church. Communism tried to stop the church. Others have tried to stop the church, and behind it all was Satan working hard to try to stop the church, but all those attempts and all future attempts will ultimately fail. Nothing can stop the bride of Jesus Christ. So fear not. Fear not when new regimes and new philosophies and new ideas threaten our existence. Fear not. Though the tension between Christ followers and world followers increases, and it is every day, fear not. The church has faced many a struggle over the past two millennia, and it shall face many struggles in the times to come, but she shall not be overcome. God church will be standing long after you and I have perished from this world. And this is one reason why investing in the church with your tithes, with your time, and with your service is so valuable because you are investing in something that is eternal. When you take time to minister and harvest kids, you're not simply giving up two hours of your life you're investing in eternity. You're putting time and effort into something that will last forever. When you join the hospitality team, you're not just smiling and handing out bulletins. You're investing in relationships that will last for all eternity. 
To sacrifice your time and resources for the church is to invest into something that death cannot conquer and the dividends of which will last for ages upon ages throughout all eternity. So take great comfort and great joy in the privilege of investing into the church. Jesus says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Your last point this morning is this. The mission of the church is to make disciples through the gospel. The mission of the church is to make disciples through the gospel. You've heard me say it time and time again, Harvest exists to make mature disciples who worship, walk, and work for Christ. That's our mission statement as a church. We get that from Matthew 28, and it's said here in Matthew 16, 19, our mission is to make disciples through the gospel. Now, this whole idea of Jesus giving Peter keys, I know that sounds a little strange to us. Keys in the ancient world represented authority. And keys were big and bulky back then. And if you were given keys to a temple or keys to someone's home, it would represent that you have authority. And if we stop and think about it, that idea is still kind of present today. If I have a key to my house, which I do, if I have a key to my house, what does that say? It says that I have authority to go to and from my house. If you were to give me a key to your house, and please don't, I have plenty of keys on my keychain already, but if you were to give me a key to your house, what would that communicate? That I have authority to come and go to your house. Keys communicate authority. So what does it mean that Peter has these keys to the kingdom? Quite simply, whoever has the keys has the power to exclude or permit entrance into the kingdom. You think, wait a minute. Are you saying Peter has the power to exclude or permit someone's entrance into the kingdom of God? Let's read the verse again. Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, so we read that again, and this is just going from weird to more weird. What's he talking about? Peter has these keys, and what's this binding and loosing? Let me just make this simple. This is what Jesus is saying. Peter and the apostles, and by extension, all Christians, have the power to allow entrance into the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is the key. When Peter's given the key, and all of us are given the key, it's the gospel. Receiving the message of salvation is what brings people into the kingdom, and that message is proclaimed by those who've been given it. And the whole binding and loosing thing here in 19, it doesn't mean that we have the power to determine what's happening in heaven. That's not what it means. It means if we, the church, are acting in accord with God's word, then when we say the truth, we agree with what's written in heaven. If we see a person shackled in sin and say sin has a hold on that person, we are agreeing with what God says. We are in unity with what God says. And if we as a church say this person by their profession of faith in Jesus is forgiven of sin, then we agree with what's written in heaven. 
We have unity with what God says in heaven. That's what that's all about. The point is, if you know the gospel, if you have been saved by the precious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you have the keys to the kingdom. And you understand the shackles of sin and the freedom of grace. So the question then becomes, are you going to use the keys? Are you going to share the message? Are you going to live in such a way that people notice? Are you going to make disciples? Are you going to offer what loosens the bonds of sin? I pray you do. That's the mission of the church. And let me say this. As a fellow keeper of the keys, if you are here today and you have never received the gospel of Jesus Christ, now's your moment. Here's the gospel message. Jesus is God. He came down to earth as a baby. He lived a pure and perfect life. He went to the cross, though he was innocent, to pay for your sin and mine. The consequences of our sin is death. He took that penalty but he did not stay dead. He rose again, conquering sin and death forever, and he offers you this gift of salvation. You don't have to die in your sins. If you do, you will be separated from God in hell forever. But if you receive by faith, if you trust in Jesus for what he did as a payment for your sin, you will be saved. If you repent, and that word means to turn away from your sin, if you repent and trust Jesus, you will be saved. So why don't you do that today? If you have more on that, I will be around after service. I'd love to talk to you. Now, church, congregation of true believers in Jesus for all time, similar to a house, we have a designer. We have a foundation we have a certain amount of strength and we have a purpose. But unlike a house, we are a living organization made up of people, specifically people who believe in the one true God and the only access to him is through his son, Jesus Christ. Now maybe you're sitting here thinking, what do I do with all this information? First, recognize that you belong to a community. You are not your own. Don't buy into the cultural lie that you are supposed to live your own life. You belong to a community. If you are a Christian, I can tell you right now, one of the things God wants you to do is he wants you to commit wholeheartedly to your church. God wants you all into this community of believers we're going to look more into what that looks like here in the weeks to come, but the first thing that I want you to walk away with is this idea of commitment. God wants you to commit to a church, and if you have, great. I would ask, where's the level of your commitment? Could it be stronger? Life is busy. I know life is busy, and this church thing is sometimes hard to squeeze into our schedules. I get it. Don't think for a moment that I don't, but whatever has your time, has your priority. Where is your priority, church? Second, 
understand this. Understand why we at Harvest Decatur, this is why we do what we do. It's because we believe God's word teaches about the church and how it's supposed to function. And everything we do, like I said, is intentionally modeled after Jesus' church. Do we do this perfectly? No. No, we do not. You, we, your elders, would be the first to admit that we do not do this perfectly. But we seek to do what we do because the early church did what it did. Pray for your elders. Pray for your leaders. Lastly, be a part of the mission of the church by seeking to make disciples through reflecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live the gospel. Speak the gospel. Be bold with the gospel for the purpose of making disciples for Jesus Christ. The church is the assembly of all Christians for all time. It was created by Jesus, built on the apostles, strong enough to withstand death, and the mission is to proclaim the message of the gospel. How did Jesus do this? How did he do it? How did he establish this church? How did he get a group of bumbling men from several walks of life to band together and start the greatest spiritual revolution to have ever left its mark on the canvas of history? How did he do it? So many cults and religions and groups have tried to change the world, but none have succeeded to the extent that the church has. How did Jesus do this? Was it through good business practice? No. He did it through the strongest possible material, through his blood. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was necessary to start the church because only through his death and resurrection was salvation possible, was sanctification possible, was changing the human heart possible, and that was essential. Those things were essential because unless those things happened, the Holy Spirit could not come, take up residence inside those who believe, and do the work that expands over the globe. It was his death that brought about the church. And the closer we draw to the substitutionary death of Jesus, the more we see our sin for what it is and the more we receive his grace and that will make us stronger Christians which will make us a stronger church. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, our great founder, the cornerstone. Thank you. Thank you that you built the church. Thank you that you did not forsake us to an eternal destiny of separation from you. You came. You sacrificed yourself. You saved us, but it didn't stop there. You called us to continue this work of redemption through your bride, the church. This is your thing, not ours. This is your work, not ours. This is done in your power, not ours. So empower us, Lord Jesus. Help us not to grow weary, but to hold strong to our commitments as your church. By serving and sacrificing for your church, we are serving and sacrificing for you. Help us carry the torch of the gospel through all areas of our neighborhood, 
all areas of the city, all areas of the state, the country, and the world. Bless us. Bless us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.